Thanks for listening today to In 16 Years. I'm Amy, and this is a podcast where I talk about what I've learned in 16 years of living with stage 4 endo, severe IBS, fibromyalgia, and interstitial cystitis. My name is Brittany, and I live with celiac disease, anxiety, and my own hormonal fun. We hope this show will inspire you, empower you, and help you feel supported on your own health journey. Brittany and I are not doctors, dietitians, mental health professionals, experts on endometriosis, or any kind of qualified medical professional. So that means that none of the information we share on this podcast is medical or mental health advice. If you get inspired by something we say, always consult your qualified medical professional first before making any changes. Hi, everyone. Before we start today's episode, Brittany and I just want to clarify that at the time of recording, we use the terminology biological female and biological male. But since recording, we've learned that it's really just best to say the terminology people assigned female at birth and people assigned male at birth. When we refer to biological female and biological male throughout the episode, we are actually referring to people assigned female at birth and people assigned male at birth. Now we will go ahead and let the original episode play from the beginning. Today we're going to continue to explore the sex and gender bias in medicine here in the United States and how it affects our care. This is part three, so if you haven't heard part one and two, then we recommend you go back and listen because this is a continuation of those episodes. In part one, we talked about the sex and gender bias, what it is, and why it's important. In part two, we talked about how it leads to what Maya Dussenberry in her book, Doing Harm, the truth about how bad medicine and lazy science leave women dismissed, misdiagnosed, and sick. And we talked about how this leads to what she calls the knowledge gap, which is that science knows less about the body of the biological female. Unfortunately, the lack of knowledge doesn't end there. Science also knows less about the bodies of people who have transitioned, people who are intersex, and people of color. Today we're going to be exploring the gender side of the sex and gender bias and why culturally some doctors don't listen to their female patients. In exploring the gender bias today, we want to recognize that not everyone who is assigned female at birth identifies as a woman. Some may identify as non-binary or as men or as gender fluid, just to name a few. And we believe that it's really important and integral to use inclusive language when talking about topics like endometriosis and menstruation, because not everyone who experiences these identifies as a woman. It's important for all of us to feel welcome in this space because these are all experiences that we share and we can relate to no matter how we identify. Amy and I have been really intentional in shifting our language on this podcast to be more inclusive by using terms like people with endometriosis instead of women, for example. Of course, we're not perfect, and we are still unlearning and learning constantly. And we mention this because today we're going to be primarily referring to women in this episode. The reason for this is because we're talking about historical information of hysteria, for instance on which there is research primarily about the gender of women and how that history has bled into the 20th century for women or people today who are women presenting. 
We will also go over some studies on the current day which compare the genders men and women. So the usage of the term women in our episode today is not to be uninclusive or to not acknowledge and include others in our community who don't identify that way. Rather, it is to maintain the integrity and the terminology used in these studies as it's not our place to change that. While this series will focus on how the sex and gender bias in medicine affects cis women and people perceived as women by society, it's important to point out that the sex and gender bias affects all people. It's especially important to point out that people of other genders and gender identities such as non-binary and trans are additionally marginalized and may experience similar or increased bias and discrimination. Depending on what other identities we hold, those intersections can further compound the biases that we face, having detrimental consequences on our health care. In Doing Harm, the author Maya, she states that as a result of the gender and sex bias, there is a subconscious idea in medicine that women cannot be trusted to state their symptoms. Like, that's what she refers to as the trust gap. Like, women don't know what's going on with their bodies. And so we can't possibly understand <laughs> what's happening in our bodies or be reliable witnesses to our symptoms and experiences. Can't possibly. Outlandish. So let's explore why. And I think in order to explore why, we need to go through a little bit of a history of hysteria. Oh, I love a good history dive. The history of hysteria. Well, we're diving deep, so get the pod, Brittany. Okay, I'm ready. <laughs> Got my oxygen tanks. A week's supply of tampons, just in case. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> so we're going to do a little history lesson on hysteria, and this is going to be our condensed version. There's the a cliff notes. Yes. The cliff notes to history. Our spark notes version. <laughs> So there's a lot of information out there on this. There's been multiple books written. There's really great scholarly articles. And of course, Doing Harm does a really great job of explaining this. This is our condensed version. So if you want more information on that and you're a little history gremlin like I am, definitely go out and look for resources. There's so much fascinating information on where this idea comes from and how it's affecting us in the current day. To start this epic tale, Let's go all the way back to 1900 B.C. <gasps> Is that 4,000 years ago? Just about. Oh. It's a long time ago. More than 4,000 years ago. Yeah. The reason we're going back to 1900 B.C. is because that's the oldest mention of hysteria on record. The record, which was made by the ancient Egyptians, talk about the reason for hysteria being the uterus not being in its proper place, and wandering about where it doesn't belong. My favorite thing, the wandering uterus. So it talks about this being the reason for hysteria and goes on to talk about ways to get it back where it belongs. <gasps> oh my goodness. Does it say things like, go back, go home. <laughs> Points its finger at the bad uterus. The hieroglyphs are just a finger pointing at a uterus. <laughs> they, the scholars look, they're like, ooh, these hieroglyphs are really hard to interpret. Is that, what is that lumpy, fleshy hieroglyph? Is that, oh. a, is that a uterus? Is that a pointing <laughs> finger at a uterus? Are those multiple uteruses? Oh, that definitely. Oh, some red drops coming from there. That's a uterus. Is that an accent or is that blood? <laughs> Everything just says 
uterus, go back to your spot, obey me. (laughs) No, it doesn't say that. But they had a lot of, I guess, prescriptions of the time or ideas of what to do to get your uterus to go back in its home, like swallowing bitter herbs, which is a very common remedy for many different things, or putting salves or creams on your vulva to get your uterus to come back to its home. Hold on, Brittany, you left out some very important details. Oh, did I? First of all, the creams put on the vulva were very stinky. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yes. Yeah, they I don't know if it stinky. was like like a stink bomb. But why would that attract your uterus? Wouldn't that make it like run further up into your well, body? <laughs> uh, maybe the uterus was down in the vagina. I mean, I don't all know right. where they thought the uterus That's was. That's true. In my left elbow? Like, I'm not <laughs> sure. <laughs> stinky creams on the vulva or the bitter herbs in the stomach. Mm. Logic. Personally, I'd rather put the stinky cream on the vulva. Yeah, personally. If, as long well. as it didn't make the vulva itchy. And yeah, no chemical burns. Like, I'm good with yeah. that. Yeah. As long as there was, like, a reaction-free zone, I'd rather not then I'd take swallow that. the pills. And now we're going to move on in our history of hysteria to the Greeks. Now, the Greeks took the theory of the wandering uterus and they made it their own. They even coined the name that some of us may be very familiar with. Hysteria. Hysteria is actually Greek from the word hystera, which is Greek for the womb. You see? The wandering womb. The hysteria. Wow, so our... The hystera. The hysteria. The hysteria was literally just named after the womb. (laughs) Okay, we're not off to a great start here, Greeks. So, is a woman exhibiting strange behavior? Hysteria. What about if she's having insomnia? Hysteria. What about if she's having paralysis? Hysteria. What about pain? Hysteria. What about vomiting? Hysteria. What about anxiety? Hysteria. That wandering uterus (laughs) causes so many problems. Mischievous uterus. Mischievous. Go back to your spot. Let me use that smelly cream real quick. <laughs> the Greeks didn't use smelly cream. <laughs> they hung the woman upside down from a ladder, Brittany. Oh, yeah. I knew Science that. had really progressed and advanced yeah, at the that point. Smelly cream or bitter herbs? No, no, no. Hanging you upside down. <laughs> no one put cream Gravity. on my vulva. <laughs> Gravity is going to work instead. I mean, they were, they were cutting edge, the gravity for that moving uterus, because apparently it was just going to fall back in place somehow. <laughs> I get another one for you. You ready? The ancient Romans also believed something similar, but they were just smart enough to realize that the womb doesn't wander. Wait a minute. Hold, hold. Slow clap they for the Romans. They were just smart enough to be like, oh, the womb doesn't wander. Look at them go. But, 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 oh, they still thought that all those strange behaviors we just mentioned originated in the womb. So marginally smarter, not completely smarter. Now, you can see that the idea of hysteria changed in accordance with the times, the culture. And hysteria in the West changed over the centuries. And in the 5th to the 13th century, the idea of hysteria was really heavily influenced by Christian culture, which means that the idea of satanic possession and then witchcraft. And so, Brittany... Your dreams have come true. Oh, no. No more stinky creams on the vulva. No more swallowing bitter pills. Just a little bit of exorcism. 
torturing some the quote unquote witches. Oh, that's not burning better. at the stake. I mean, I think if someone put fire to the uterus, I think it would go back in its place. I mean, I think that would make, you <laughs> maybe like, it'd try to run so far away it comes out of your mouth. I don't think it would want to go like back the in uterus its place. on fire. It's like oh, I'll go Lord. home. I swear I'll be good. I'll be good. Ground me. I'll go there forever. It's fine. I won't watch TV. I won't look at my iPhone. I'll just stay in my spot. I promise. I'll be really good. Just please, please stop burning me. Put the stinky creams back on me. I don't I'll care. take them any day. <laughs> History has not been kind to women in their wandering uteruses. <laughs> I mean, we joke, but actually it's like horribly disgusting. It's actually horrific. It is absolutely sickening. And I'm glad that medicine and ideas and culture has evolved and has progressed to where we are present day, which is not perfect, but is much less barbaric than it was during past centuries. So I'm sure you're wondering what exactly hysteria was in these ancient times? Oh, wait. I know what hysteria is now. And what is it now? Well, now, usually we say, like, hysterical. So, oh, you're so hysterical or, like, stop being hysterical. And it just means, like, being really emotional or, like, out of control. Like, if I'm laughing hysterically or, like, <laughs> I'm crying hysterically. So, I'm so just, you like, every podcast episode? I'm peeing hysterically. So you between takes of every podcast episode. <laughs> I'm pooping hysterically. I'm you at the beginning oh my God, and end of I every say, podcast episode. I love that. Can I start using that? I'm bleeding hysterically. Yes. Just like uncontrollable, raging, emotional bleeding. Like my uterus bleeding. Having a hysterical fit. Hysterically. <laughs> yes. You okay. can use that. Permission granted. But what was it back then? Because it, it was probably could be associated with like psychological disturbance and bizarre behavior. And that's exactly how it started. It started as this really huge, wide umbrella for all of these symptoms that also included neurological symptoms to begin with. But anything from pain to anxiety to fainting to seizures, they all were under this giant umbrella of, oh, that happened to you? Then you must have hysteria. Ooh, what about sneezing? Well, if you also have some pain, then you probably have hysteria. What about sneezing if I have anxiety and I'm in pain? Then you definitely have hysteria. <laughs> no need to look any further for other underlying causes, just hysteria. As medicine progressed and science understood better how the brain worked and the body worked and how emotions worked and everything in our system progressed to a better understanding, other diagnoses came about. They were able to determine that different symptoms were indicative of other illnesses that weren't hysteria. By other illnesses, you mean new illnesses that yes. they categorized and they named. So instead of like having what? a seizure and being classified as having hysteria, that was determined to be epilepsy. And it was a whole new diagnosis with its own set of conditions and a symptom that was previously included in hysteria. <gasps> Another symptom of hysteria bites the dust mm -hmm. and becomes a different illness validated by, quote unquote, validated by science. Thank you, science. Oh, good job, science. What else? What else did hysteria become? Other things like Tourette's syndrome, mm. multiple sclerosis, mm. anxiety, depression, and endometriosis. <gasps> so hysteria morphed. Like a caterpillar turning into a beautiful Aww. butterfly into a whole bunch of different diseases. Yeah, and by the 20th century, so many of those symptoms were taken out of what hysteria was classified as that diagnoses were made less and less and less. 
Ah, so when science didn't know any better about how to categorize and classify the symptoms and recognize them as illnesses, then they called them hysteria. (gasps) Just like science nowadays, when Mm -hmm. it doesn't know how to recognize the symptoms of endometriosis, calls it, are you under stress, honey? (laughs) It's like it's all in your head. Is this anxiety, (laughs) love? (laughs) Go to the doctor. You're like, I really think you need to read the history of hysteria and how hysteria morphed into all these different illnesses. And you will see that one day your diagnosis of it's all in your head, honey, will morph into the diagnosis of endometriosis. A beautiful blue butterfly with big, shiny, flapping wings, sniffing. Oh, they sniff? No. (laughs) Licking. They lick? Yeah, with their tongues. That's how they get nectar. Okay. Their tongues roll out of their mouths. It's actually hilarious. Have you seen a video of it? (laughs) Their tongues roll out of their mouths and they lick the nectar. (laughs) (laughs) We've lost it. Brittany was just acting like a butterfly. Hysteria. Oh, no, I was just going to do that. Oh, it's ancient Egypt. (laughs) Brittany, you've been diagnosed with hysteria. Oh, okay. Oh, it's the medieval times. Brittany, you're my prescription. Let me throw you in water tied up, and if you float, you're a witch. But if you sink, you're not a witch, but you're dead anyway. I love how uh, that made logical sense back in, you know, New England and other countries during that time. I just don't see the logic. (laughs) I don't see the logic of hysteria either, but here we are. Well, you would be pleased to know that around the 1600s and onwards, There was really a shift away from the idea that hysteria was caused by witchcraft or demonic possession. And thank goodness, because what they were doing to these poor women with hysteria at that time is absolutely heartbreaking. And so many lives were taken due to these beliefs. When really the majority of these women were suffering from illnesses that were not able to be identified by the science at the time. Can you imagine actually suffering? In 1450, with endometriosis, you're suffering, writhing on the floor in pain, screaming, and somebody takes you away to murder you because they believe that you're possessed by something. That's just a completely horrific thing that I can't even imagine. And it's just so sad that that was the reality for some humans in our history. So luckily, or I think unluckily, because it's really influenced where we as women are today, but there started to be a shift towards the idea that hysteria was due to an emotional condition and that these emotions were causing symptoms in the body. So now we're going to fast forward to the 1800s, and a lot of things happened between those 200 years, but slow progressions. This was more of a big progression in the wrong direction. Plus, we're doing the cliff notes slash spark notes version. So we could go into the whole history, but then we'd have to write like a 300-page book. That'd be great. Can we do that? Yes, I would love to. (laughs) But there's already really good books written, so just come here. They've covered it. So when we fast forward to the 1800s, Dr. Sigmund Freud enters the scene. Oh, no. Oh, yes. (laughs) Oh, jeez. You ready for that? (laughs) Hold on, let me guess. It all has to do with sex. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. So while he was brilliant in some ways. And, and obsessed with everything being caused by sex. Yeah, not so great in some other ways. That sexual repression caused some issues for him. So he actually presented a paper 
entitled The Ideology of Hysteria. It's quite famous and quite interesting to read. And he theorized that hysteria was a repression of memories, unconscious or subconscious, of sexual trauma or abuse. So that was what he hypothesized in his first writing of the paper. He actually changed his mind a year later and said that hysteria wasn't caused by repressed childhood sexual trauma, but rather caused by repressed childhood sexual fantasies. And so those repressed fantasies converted into physical manifestations of these feelings or symptoms of hysteria. So thank you, Sigmund Freud, for your incredible theories about where hysteria came from. Can't say that I agree with them, but due to these theories, his idea of psychoanalysis did take hold in medicine and did progress. So the history of Freud is very complicated and can bring up a lot of conflicting feelings. But I think, you know, he made progress in a lot of areas and then did not make progress in other areas. So go down the rabbit hole of Freud. Just go look up Freud on Wikipedia. It's a long and fascinating history. <laughs> and then click all the different links as you come across them. It'll be three days before you resurface, I promise. <laughs> You'll be like, oh my God, it's it's already Tuesday? Shoot, I missed Monday. I mean, I'm supposed to be at work. If you're familiar with the Oedipal Complex or the Electra Complex, if any of those ring any bells, those were all Freud's. So if you're interested in reading some fascinating and strange theories, definitely give him a read. Hysteria, from there, it just, it continued its journey into the psychological realm. Its name changed over the 20th century. It's got these beautiful names like somatization, Burkett syndrome, psychogenic. At times, it can even go under the title stress-related. Okay, so this is slightly related, but slightly unrelated, but it's still kind of about hysteria. I just wanted to share something wild with you. Okay, so what you're saying is it's going to be about something that is a ridiculous idea about women and their illnesses. and It's like hysteria adjacent, but mostly about (laughs) the ridiculous things people thought about women in terms of how we function and how illness happens to us. It's like Holding hands with hysteria. Yes. Playing footsies with hysteria. Yeah, going on the swings together with hysteria. (laughs) Oh, is that just what we do? Throwing (laughs) snowballs at each other in the winter. Throwing rocks in the summer. Yeah, it's not that cute. This is a toxic relationship because both hysteria and this concept are toxic people. (laughs) Okay, we read about this in the book Doing Harm. And then later, we read more in the book For Her Own Good. Two Centuries of the Expert's Advice to Women. And that's by Barbara Ehrenreich. This idea was prevalent in both a medical and a cultural sense in the United States in the late 1800s. Oh, come on. Yeah, mid-1800s. You know it's going to be interesting. (laughs) Ooh, the mid-1800s. Tell me what they thought about women during that time. They thought that the ovaries and the uterus inside of a woman's body would compete with the person's brain power. Did you (laughs) you hear me? (laughs) So are they, how do they compete? Like, are we talking in sports and academics? How do they compete? So this, first of all, is hilarious to me because it makes it sound like there is a limited amount of energy that makes your body function. They thought somehow that all those pesky lady things like 
your period or pregnancy or menopause. Hold on. As you talk, I'm getting the shivers. (laughs) Is it from your pesky lady things? Oh, the lady bits. Oh, God. So they believe that all those lady problems actually, like, stole energy from your brain. So, like, your brain can't function when your uterus is functioning. Mm. And we're not talking about brain fog here, which is very real. <laughs> okay. Because if we were, I'd have to say, um, yeah, I'll have to say when I get my period, I do get kind yes, of like yes. but spaced that is, out a little. That is something that happens because of hormones. But they, I think, are more talking about like reduced faculties here, meaning like your brain power diminishes because your uterus and ovaries are working extra hard. And that's just wild to me. Actually, this just wasn't limited to women, though. The idea at the time was that the body had limited energy. So reproductive organs and the brain competed for energy. Ooh, a competition. That sounds tiring. (laughs) Ironically, Brittany, other organs didn't compete. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So like the spleen and the liver and the heart, for example, they didn't compete with the brain or with each other. Just the reproductive organs with the brain. That makes little to no sense. (laughs) (laughs) So therefore, men's sexual organs... (laughs) Sorry. Whoa. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Men's sexual organs also competed with the brain for energy. Yet, men and women were advised differently on this matter. Men, in fact, were encouraged not to be promiscuous and focus instead on their brain's energy since they needed to become the lawyers, the merchants, the doctors, etc., etc., of society. But for a woman, during that same time period, it was believed that reproduction was the most important purpose in her life. So women were encouraged to not let their brain take away all that precious energy from the reproductive organs. For example, you'll love this, Brittany. Too much mental stimulation during pregnancy could make you insane. I do not love that. (laughs) (laughs) Too much reading during puberty could lead to sick babies later on in life. I definitely do not love that. Masturbation could lead to dementia. How does that make any sense? (laughs) Like, what? I love how they're like, oh, yeah, orgasm for the sake of making a child. No dementia. Orgasm for the sake of orgasm. Dementia. (laughs) What is wrong with people? ridiculous. Okay, none of that makes me happy like you promised it would. But let's give some background information on what was happening in U.S. culture during the late 1800s. So at the end of the 19th century, the suffrage movement began, and this is where women were fighting for their rights to vote. Women were also starting to enter into colleges to get educations, so they were starting to go against their feminine role in society. Ah, so they were fighting against their oppression. Mm -hmm. Now the great battle happening. The great battle. Ooh. The duel, the fight. Happening between the brain and the uterus makes more sense to me. Okay, well, this is even more fun, Brittany. A Dr. Edward H. Clark, who was a professor at Harvard, he published a book during that time called Sex in Education. A Fair Chance for Girls. Do I want to know what's in this book? (laughs) I don't know how to feel yet. I don't like being referred to as a girl, but I don't know what to feel yet. (laughs) Okay, so his conclusions from that book had really great influence on the thinking of that time 
and he reviewed all the information available at the time on women. So, you know, like women were frail and sensitive and their uteruses competed with their brains and their main purpose in life was to marry and have babies. Oh, all the information available, well, your limited pool of resources really showed in your opinions here. And he professed that if a woman participated in higher education, wait for it, her uterus would atrophy. I'm sorry, what? (laughs) What did you just say to me? Well, uh, I have a college degree and my uterus definitely is not atrophied, so I'm sorry, Mr. Edward, I think you're wrong. (laughs) Did they also ever, like, give a woman higher education than check if her uterus was atrophied? <laughs> like, how did this conclusion get drawn? Did he just sit in his living room, you know, smoking his cigar with his port and go, oh, I think women's uteri would atrophy. I'll never test this or see if there's proper research done, but this is just a hypothesis and everyone's going to believe it for the next hundred years. The great cultural experiment. <laughs> we shall give women education. And then open them up and see how big their <laughs> uteris are. This doesn't sound ethical. <laughs> kind of glad that he didn't actually go through with figuring that out because all this sounds like to me is just another great excuse for oppressing women. I mean, honestly. Because God forbid you give them education, our entire human race would be decimated with their dried up, shriveled, atrophied uteri. <laughs> Goodness gracious, sir. But wait a minute. Let me get this straight. Is this a theory or is this a fact? Because... <laughs> I think in those days, it sounds like you could just sit down with your cigar in port and speak fact into existence. (laughs) They didn't need to prove it scientifically because everyone just knew this information to be true, Brittany. Hello, duh. That makes me so angry. (laughs) Remember that Dr. Clark got these conclusions after reviewing the medical literature of the time. Oh, how interesting that you take what's already been spewed out and just recycle it in a new way of the time. You know, my favorite question that I just want to ask everybody involved in this writing and this scientific discovery is how on earth could I, you know, probably because I'm spending too much energy on my uterus because I'm near my period. So how could I, with a small brain, demand scientific proof for scientific assumptions when it's just all so obvious. Who do I think I am? It's obvious, Brittany. It's obvious. Asking for proof? Like, what am I? This is science. You don't need proof in science. Come on now. (laughs) If I have to think back now to high school when my endometriosis symptoms first started, I do think they started when I enrolled in that physics class. (gasps) I was really using all of my brain power. And then... (gasps) Then I noticed when I was in, like, gym class, you know, when I was just playing volleyball, like, all my symptoms went away. And then when I went to college and I got a higher education, my goodness, that was some of the worst times that I've ever felt in my life. I think you just proved Dr. Clark there right. Now that I think about it, every time that I've been heavily using my brain, like, for example, to... Live? Yeah. Or... <laughs> exist. I don't have a conversation. <laughs> It's very hard with such a My small lady brain. Bike. <laughs> <laughs> but when I'm doing the dishes and sweeping the house, I feel great. Wow. I mean, maybe you've just proven his point. Well, knowing you as a human being and as a person who loves to give yourself more education and learn new things, I'm honestly surprised that they even saw you had a uterus during excision surgery. I mean, I would have assumed with all of that higher learning and education, it would have just 
withered all the way down to a small atrophied pea or just turned into dust and blown away into the distance. They open me up, the excision specialist, like, oh my goodness, what is that dust in there? And then they blow on it. They're like, oh, oh my goodness, shoot. That was what was left of her atrophied uterus, and we just blew it away. Didn't anyone warn her of the risk of education? <laughs> Lord. <laughs> Imagine what could have happened if I went to get my master's or even my PhD. You probably would have ended up in what they called some kind of version of insanity, like all those women who happened to read during their pregnancies. Don't pick up a book when the baby's on the way. I also kind of wonder what their definition of insanity was in that day. I don't like that word today, but I wonder if that was just... Speaking up for yourself was you were insane? Or what was the definition of insanity when this definition was prevalent? Well, since the suffrage movement was happening at that time when women were fighting for their rights, I wouldn't be surprised if being, quote unquote, insane during that time and saying things like, oh, I want to get an education. You must be insane. Ooh, I want to read. Ooh, you're pregnant. What are you thinking? Oh, my God. Honestly, it's just like this theory is so ridiculous i really cannot even fathom it and it makes me so angry and also makes me just want to like laugh that something could be so how can you how could they believe something so ridiculous but i mean that's the ignorance of the time so i get that and i don't know i just i feel sad that the oppression of women and i feel upset at the pressure that there was on women to marry and have a family and do their womanly duties and not get an education just I just hold on I just have to like compose myself for a minute because I just it's just so like seriously I mean first we heard about the horrifying horrible ridiculous history of hysteria and now we're hearing about this I just like what are you people thinking <laughs> were they thinking at all are we sure they didn't have atrophied brains and that was really the problem <laughs> their testicles atrophy and wither away <laughs> when they try to oppress others we wish that's what would have happened <laughs> Now, Amy and I laugh, and you know we love to do that. That's who we are. But the attitudes towards women during these times and throughout history honestly disgusts us. And we find the attitudes and the actions against women atrocious. So much of history is honestly sickening and barbaric. We might seem so advanced and progressive and enlightened nowadays. Quote, unquote, advanced, yeah, quote, unquote. Quote. <laughs> we might seem advanced and progressive and enlightened. But we shouldn't forget that it was only a little over 100 years ago that doctors were removing women's ovaries as a way to stop women from being disruptive or troublesome. Quote, unquote, disruptive. Quote, unquote. <laughs> what is your definition of disruptive and just troublesome? Like, just like pregnant women went, quote, unquote, insane when they read books. And that wasn't actually that long ago that that was happening. While we're talking about the history of hysteria and ideas and attitudes towards women, we know that nowadays no one would hang us from a ladder to put a wandering uterus back in place or forbid us a higher education for fear of our uteruses atrophying and disintegrating. But these ideas have morphed and bled into all aspects of our modern society. Women in the United States are still fighting to have 100% control over our bodies, to get doctors to take our symptoms seriously, 
to get the people who do medical research to care about diseases that primarily affect women, to get equal pay, and some of us to get our male partners to contribute more equally to home management, child care, and housework. We've been speaking about the history of women in the United States, but in many parts of the world, oppressive attitudes like those that were found in the United States in the 1800s, they still prevail towards women today. And these are attitudes ranging from denying them equal opportunities to treating them absolutely barbarically. So I think we'll just take a minute to sit with the knowledge that in some parts of the world, the attitudes towards women have really changed and evolved for the positive within the culture. But in other parts of the world, the cultural attitudes towards women still need to come a long way. We still have a long way to go in general before we have equality on this earth for all beings, no matter our sex, race, sexual orientation, or gender. Let's keep fighting for these changes and for a better humanity. We also want to point out that this history of hysteria is not the history of all women during those times. When we spoke about how hysteria was interpreted as demonic possession or witchcraft, this was in Europe and then later with the European colonists that came to the United States. Then when we discussed the ideas of hysteria and oppression and education in the United States in the 1800s, this was really a history of white women who were native-born. And what I mean by that is not that they were Native American, but that they were not immigrants to the United States at that time. And additionally, these native-born white women were usually of a higher socioeconomic status. During the 1800s, the views of African Americans, Native Americans, immigrants, even working-class whites, they were not seen as having this same, quote-unquote, weak constitution that these white, civilized, delicate ladies of the 1800s had. So therefore, they were not being diagnosed with hysteria. Now, of course, each of these groups were fighting their own distinct battles with oppression at the time, and many of them still are. In contrary to the native-born white, delicate lady, the view of many in the 1800s of black people, people of color, and sometimes even poor white people, were that they were savages. The connotations of that word really disgusts me to my core. During that time, the white, native-born, upper-class lady was seen as civilized, while many other populations were seen as the opposite. So the reason that this is so important to talk about is because of the way that these populations were viewed. Black people, people of color, even the poor working-class white people were seen by this upper echelon, the people with the money and the power of being stronger or hardier or able to withstand more pain than their delicate, quote-unquote, counterparts. Due to these erroneous, completely false, and in some capacities, utterly disgusting beliefs, these populations of people were oftentimes medically experimented on. 
much of the surgical advances made in gynecology and obstetrics were due to operations by white male gynecologists on enslaved black women or later in the century on freed black women. Often these surgeries were done without anesthesia and without consent. That honestly just makes me want to cry. And I can't imagine being cut open without anesthesia, not having given consent, so somebody can perfect their new medical technique or try or experiment with something new. I find that sickening. And it's really important to remember that this happened. And it's also important to be aware that in some parts of the world, operations on women without their consent are still happening. Brittany and I want to recommend a really well-researched and interesting book that goes in depth on American medical history in the 1800s. The book is called Medical Bondage, Race, Gender, and the Origins of American Gynecology, and it's written by Deidre Cooper Owens. Although the subject matter is really difficult, this book tells the stories of the barbaric and inhumane practices to advance surgery in the 1800s. I really liked that Dr. Deidre Owens, the author, she says that these Black women could be called the mothers of American gynecology. And I thought that really honored them because many of us have heard of the fathers of American gynecology, but that telling of history is with a disregard to the sacrifice and the contribution of the many women who were operated on against their will. The book Medical Bondage goes over parts of history that I wasn't fully aware of and that I think are really important to educate ourselves on. I think that we'll just sit again for a minute with how dark and difficult history has been for so many women and in respect of the hardships that these women had to endure. Now I was thinking we could move into the ideas of the U.S. in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Many diseases in the past, thankfully we've started to get away from that now, Started, but not started. completely got yeah. there. Started. Note the started. Um, they used to have kind of a profile of the personality or traits. It was believed that the illness was more common or prevalent in people with those traits. So what I mean by this is, Ooh. yeah, something like a migraine would be more common or expected in people who were professionals and were perfectionists. If you were a perfectionist, and a professional, well, then of course you have migraines. That's who gets migraines. Brittany. Not that there's something actually wrong with you. I don't Not have migraines, you, which is really shocking. Okay. Your <laughs> patient profile, like Brittany is a very professional and she's very perfectionist, but working on it. Yes, but I have never had a migraine, so hmm. I don't know what that says about me. You're a weird Am I lying to myself? <laughs> Ooh, you may be. It's called the migraine personality. If you haven't heard of it, then great, because no need to, because Having these traits doesn't make you more likely to get a migraine. <gasps> no way. Oh, my God. But here we are seeing once more how many common illnesses continue to have pervasive stereotypes about the quote-unquote psychological causes of them, like for migraines being high-strung and worrying a lot, for example. Well, here's another funny one that I know will make you laugh. 
is about chronic fatigue syndrome. It used to be called the yuppie flu. Yuppie is a kind of derogatory term, and it stands for young urban professional. So the yup. <laughs> so the Y-U-P, young urban professional. And they were stereotyped as rich and lazy. So in chronic fatigue syndrome, which, by the way, is a very real syndrome that I was diagnosed with because of, you guessed it, chronic fatigue that I had for more than 18 months and very high counts of the Epstein-Barr antibodies in my blood. Thank you. And it totally sucked. Thank you. And it took a complete lifestyle overhaul to get rid of. Thank you. But it wasn't because I was lazy. Really? Or rich. Or really? had burnout. Really? Or problems coping with my life. No, oh, surprise. As the derogatory name of yuppie flu implied. Um, it wasn't because it was psychosomatic. It was because I was really sick. Thank you. And thank you. And thank you once more. <laughs> well, thankfully, so many serious illnesses and disorders, like the migraine, interstitial cystitis, vulvodynia, and chronic fatigue syndrome, are finally... Finally! 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 <laughs> finally! Finally being taken seriously by science and medicine and starting to get the research and respect that they deserve. Finally. Finally. Ooh, Brittany, so what is the endometriosis patient profile? Tell me about myself. Tell me my patient profile. Tell me what I'm like. Are you sure you want to know? Mm. You sure you want to be roasted right here on live microphone? Oh, you know, but don't speak too fast because you might further atrophy my uterus. Okay, fair. I won't so go just too speak much slowly higher. and calmly so that okay. I can put it in my tiny little bird brain. <laughs> you said it, not me. I can't even believe I came up with that own insult about myself. Oh my that was a high-level insult. Especially because your uterus. I'm pretty sure I just lost like three inches of my uterus. Yeah, your this. uterus and one ovary are working in overdrive. So I'm surprised <laughs> your brain has enough power to even speak. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, I did want to point out, now that you asked about your personality profile for endo, that the diseases that had these traits or these people types attached to them were predominantly diseases and illnesses that women had. Ah, of course they were. Of course they were. So, for instance, a perfectionist is seen as neurotic or being very tight, holding on to things and tense, and it's seen as a psychological issue. So, therefore, when you get a migraine, it's because you're neurotic or you're holding on too tightly or you have too much anxiety, and here is the way it's manifesting. So, those were typically the diseases that received these kind of traits or personality types around them. Oh, I see. So predominantly women were having mm -hmm. these psychosomatic manifestations of their neurotic tendencies. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So what are my neurotic tendencies? Tell me. Tell us about endometriosis. You sure you want to know? I do. <laughs> I want to see how spot on the profile is. Oh. Okay. First, before I do that, I just want to remind you that these profiles are not true. 0% true. They stemmed out of these false beliefs that illnesses were somehow psychosomatic in nature. Got it. So the same pattern that we've been seeing with other illnesses. Mm-hmm. Got it. Okay, so there is a book written by Kate Sear, and it's called The Makings of a Modern Epidemic, Endometriosis, Gender, and Politics. Oh, my God. I know, right? Ooh, what a title. Wow. <laughs> I want to read that book. So in this book... Kate talks about a gynecologist who was prevalent in the 70s and 80s. His name is Robert Kistner. 
He talked about the endopatient profile, and I have a quote about what he said it was. Are you ready for it? Give it to me. Okay. He explained that a person with endometriosis is said to be, quote, mesomorphic, but underweight, overanxious, intelligent, egocentric, and a perfectionist, end quote. Oh, my goodness. How do say you feel? Them, say them again. I want to <laughs> I want to comment in live time. Okay, ready? Tell me all the character traits. Mesomorphic. <gasps> What's that? So, it's actually <laughs> well, the first one. My brain doesn't my you look, I'm on my period right now. It's clearly sucking away all the energy from my brain. There's no brain okay? power. My brain is it's either your uterus withers or your brain withers. Right. And right now my brain is withering. So, Well, this is a fair question. Okay, so mesomorphic is a body type and Amy probably has this body type. If you don't know what it is, give it a Google. But if you do have it, then you get one point. <gasps> oh, my God. I have this body type called mesomorphic. I got a point. You get a point. Ooh. You're going to be a He's winner. already talking about me. Okay. So the next one, underweight. <gasps> yes. Yeah, two points. Oh, my God. Two for two so far. Okay. <laughs> the third one is overanxious. I used to be overanxious until I did cognitive behavioral therapy. So, yes. Yes, because if you never had, you still would be. <laughs> oh, God, I would be so anxious right now. The next one is intelligent. And <gasps> I'll answer that for you. You don't oh, yeah. get that point. No, I you don't... do get that point. <laughs> well, I just, I don't think I'm intelligent enough to, answer, to figure it out if I'm intelligent. No, so. you definitely get that point. <laughs> so now we have one, two, three, four out of four points. So the next one is egocentric. I have been known to be quite odd. The odd one out. Yes. The weirdo. The strange one. I'm going to go with. Uh-huh. Definitely. Yeah. Tick, Have you ever fixated on yourself? That's kind of when egocentric means like I spend a lot of time thinking about myself. Not really? in like a. Really? I thought egocentric was just like you had weird collectible things. <laughs> collectible things. I don't know. Are you a like, collector? <laughs> no. Like someone egocentric is like that person's egocentric is no, like always wearing like. That's eccentric. Oh. oh my God, you're right. It's it's sorry. It's the it's uterus the atrophying the, the brain. Jeez, they're competing with each other. I mean, they sound very similar. I can okay. see how that would be confusing. I will... Egocentric. What is that? So egocentric is. Go when... ahead. Wait a minute. Definitely, I'm eccentric. Yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. Eccentric. Okay. So what is egocentric? <laughs> so egocentric is more when you are fixated on yourself, and not in like a I only care about myself kind of way, but. You're always acutely aware of what you perceive people to be either thinking about you or how you're interacting with the world in almost a way that could be... I'm obsessed with myself. Yeah. No. I would have to say... <laughs> Not obsessed with yourself. I mean, a little. Who isn't? But like... <laughs> well, that's fair. Everybody's a little egocentric. I'm going to say they didn't hit the mark. Have you one. ever been egocentric in your life? Oh, Yeah. <laughs> so maybe 10 years ago they hit the mark. On okay, one. yeah. If they're talking about the Amy of 10 years yes. ago, then tick that box, <laughs> Okay, baby. then we got another point. <laughs> All right, and the last one is a perfectionist. <gasps> Not right now, but when I was younger, yes, I was totally So I feel obsessed. like Amy 10 years ago would have six for six. Okay, so 10 years ago I had six out of six, but right now I have four out of six. So if their personalities change over time, as sometimes they do, does that mean the endo changes over time? When I had all of these, that I have a full endo, and then if I lost one, then it's on my endo just like withered away the way my uterus did. Well, from what and then you're... they opened me up, and then they they were like, "Oh, we were gonna do excision, but actually, there's just all <laughs> dust in here." 
blew it out again. (laughs) They blew it out, and now it's done. The fastest surgery in history, (laughs) but still costs $200,000 if you're not insurance. (laughs) Thanks to the U.S. medical system. Well, I think if your endo excision specialist opened you up and told us both that you had stage four, I'm pretty sure that this didn't have anything to do with the outcome of your endo. Darn it. So I also wanted to add that there was this prevalent idea Another idea? My Another gosh. How many ideas did people have? All Too the people many ideas without... and not enough facts, honestly, <laughs> is the problem here, okay? A lot of unsubstantiated theories that somehow just made their way into medical books and then people just believed them as fact. Problem, medical system, it's a problem. And they tell us not to consult Google because of all oh. the quote-unquote untrue things we're going to learn. Don't consult medical books from the 1970s <laughs> or the 80s. They're still <laughs> teaching them things from the 1970s and 80s. <laughs> Okay, so this idea has to do with that personality type. So it was believed that endometriosis was an illness that affected a group of people that were ambitious white career women. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, that's a lot. Break that down for me. (laughs) That's going to take years to unpack, but we'll do it briefly. (laughs) So first we say ambitious and career woman. The idea was that these women would put off motherhood or the family for careers and somehow (gasps) how dare yeah somehow this choice to (gasps) be ambitious rather than a homemaker which you can choose either or there is no shame in either of those options but they believed that if you you chose both yes or you can be both but they believed that if you chose to choose a career over family somehow this disease would manifest itself so this zany theory somehow was founded on an idea, not a fact, an idea that if you were an ambitious career woman, you were more likely to have uninterrupted, prolonged uninterrupted ovulation. Because you weren't pregnant. Yes. Okay. But not like ovulating every day, just like you would ovulate one month and the next month and the next month, and you would just never get a break from ovulating. Yeah, right. Just never slowing the ovulation never got down. Pregnant because mm-hmm. your body was doing what it was naturally designed to do, and God the menopause, <laughs> which was ovulate, ovulate every single month unless you're pregnant. <laughs> That's what it's or supposed unless to do. you're menopause. But somehow, if you do that, you know what? Though honestly, Brittany, that makes sense. We've already established. That being educated and using your brain can damage your womb. Oh, yeah. So I guess not using the womb could also damage the womb. Why not? Oh, like not using your brain to make up these things could damage your brain? (laughs) Obviously, the uterus is a fragile, sensitive being. Oh, we must nurture her. Just like the woman that it lives inside. Mm. And to be clear... The uterus doesn't cause endo, but however, many doctors today, as we know, still think that the uterus causes endo via retrograde menstruation, but this theory has never been proven in a hundred years, and it is full of holes. And while many doctors believe that removing the uterus via hysterectomy is a cure for endo, it's not, and that's a myth. Okay, now can you break down the that it was a disease of white women. How is it speculated that that came about? This is a very pervasive problem that is common in more than just endometriosis. I'll explain what the problem is, but I just first wanted to say that this is common of a lot of illnesses and diseases. They were thought to be more prevalent or only show in white people, 
that's not actually the case. They're not more common in white people. So they thought that this was what it was, that it was a disease of white women because those were the people who were going to the doctor to get diagnosed. But the real reason is actually more to do with access to health care. So women who were white had more means or a higher socioeconomic status or better health care in their area, better access to adequate health care, and were going to the doctor and getting diagnosed with endometriosis. In reality, it's not that they're more prevalent in white people. It's just that the white people were the ones who, at that time, were more able to have the means to get the diagnosis. And oftentimes, Black women who had endometriosis were actually being misdiagnosed with other diseases, like pelvic inflammatory disease, which is oftentimes passed through an STD. And this can reflect a much bigger issue at hand, part of a racial bias that has oftentimes hindered care for Black patients. So there's a lot of factors going into this, but we want to be clear that endometriosis is not a disease of white women. It's not a disease of career women. It's not a disease because you didn't get pregnant fast enough or ever. Anyone can have endo. Any race, ethnicity, social economic status Endo doesn't care what you look like. It doesn't care who you are. And unfortunately, in the past several decades, endometriosis isn't the only disease that was wrongly assumed to be more common in white people. There were other diseases, too, during this time that were thought to be more prevalent in white people, but in reality, they actually weren't. And it just seemed that way for the same reasons, like that at first these diseases were mostly being diagnosed in white people and not in Black people or people of color due to access to medical care. So one of the last things that we want to share that we learned from the book Doing Harm has to do with how women were thought of, particularly in the 70s in the medical field. So the book does a really excellent job of kind of examining these beliefs and the stereotypes, and we wanted to point out some of the most ridiculous ones that we read. Maya states in her book that in a 1971 textbook, it stated that, quote, many women, wittingly or unwittingly, exaggerate the severity of their complaints to gratify neurotic desires, end quote. Another one that's really going to make you laugh or scream out in anguish, maybe both, is that there was a 1970s textbook, and in it, it said, quote, Dysmenorrhea is generally a symptom of a personality disorder, even though hormonal imbalance may be present, end quote. Okay, I just have to like, okay, <laughs> yeah. first of all, dysmenorrhea is when your period is painful. That's yes. what dysmenorrhea is. Like, I'm pretty sure most That's of us painful, painful cramps <laughs> have dysmenorrhea listening yeah. to this podcast. Okay, so I'm sorry, a symptom of a personality disorder even though hormonal imbalance may be present. It's okay, not the hormones. So it's not those. We recognize that there's something biologically wrong with your hormones, but that's not why you have the cramps. Okay. The hormonal imbalance, the disruption of your hormones, that is not what is producing your pain. It's the personality disorder. Yeah. But if you're a man with low testosterone, that's what's causing your erectile dysfunction. Not the fact that you're an inadequate performer at work and you feel unsure of yourself. Ridiculous double standards. <laughs> Honestly, the 1970s were a mess, right? Like, there were so many illnesses that they still thought 
were due to psychosomatic reasons were issues of mental health. I'm so glad we don't live in the 1970s, but I really don't think like we've come we've far, but not far enough. Progress too far. <laughs> no. All right, let's bring it home to the present day. Where are women at with all the stereotypes and beliefs about them? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. So we want to highlight a really fascinating study. It's called Brave Men and Emotional Women, a theory-guided literature review on gender bias in healthcare and gendered norms toward patients with chronic pain. And of course, brave men and emotional women here are used specifically as gender normative ideas. So brave men and emotional women. So it's kind of exploring those stereotypes of those genders. My gosh, what a fantastic title. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. The study was done in 2018 by Anka Samulowitz, Ida Gremier, Eric Erickson, and Gunnel Hensing. They review how gender bias and gender norms affect patients with chronic pain. So this review used 77 articles, and these 77 articles were picked based on criteria, so they weren't just randomly picked. If you want to know what the criteria is, definitely go read the study, but just know that they were picked specifically based with criteria. And these 77 articles that they selected through this criteria were published about treatment and patients with various pain conditions. These 77 articles were published in 39 journals, over six countries, across 15 years, so a very wide, varied range of information. And these studies were all designed differently with different kinds of research. So that's what this study or review is. I love that because basically this review of these articles did a really broad range, a broad time span, a broad range of articles with different research in different journals that it was published in. So I just think that's really important to like re-highlight. Like I just want to repeat what Brittany just said. But it's just it's important because it's not like we looked at one article and this one article said these things about men and women. It's like they put together this information based on a really diverse set of published articles on chronic pain. And they saw that these stereotypes that we're going to talk about held true across patient care. When you start looking in depth into studies, you can see that there's a really varied difference between a really substantial study, like 10,000 people were interviewed across six countries versus some studies where it says something like 50% of women prefer men to have beards versus be clean shaven. Like, okay, that's interesting. Let me look at the study. And they're like, oh, so our subset was my seven neighborhood women looking at my husband's beard versus when he shaved it. And of those seven women, Four of them liked him with his beard. So 50% of women studied. So four people in the whole world (laughs) is what you base this study on. So a really unique, tiny subset of people is what now made this stereotype that women prefer men with beards. There actually have been real studies done on this. I'm not debasing that study. But a lot of... Yeah, Brittany just made this study up in the moment. made it up right now. 
she actually got together me and six other women in the neighborhood and made us look at her husband when he had the beard. And I shaved it off. And then she buzzed it right in front of us. And she was like, what do you think of him now? We were like, I don't know. It's your husband. Amy's one of the three. She doesn't love facial hair. Exactly. I was like, I um, like it. I, but I was not in the majority. So sorry. But that's some of these studies just don't have a really wide base of people studied or it's not a diverse base of people studied. Or it's studied on a population that isn't what the intended use is for. It's very interesting. So this review is fascinating because it takes so many different studies across such a wide and diverse range of information that it's really comprehensive. So this study reviews the gender bias and the gender norms towards patients with chronic pain. So quickly, we just want to point out that more women have chronic pain than men. And chronic pain conditions like endometriosis, fibromyalgia, interstitial cystitis, or painful bladder syndrome, autoimmune diseases, these are much more common in women. And additionally, pain is perceived differently in biological males and biological females. And this may be due to genetic factors, like pain receptors are different in the bodies of biological males and females. And then biological females have more pain receptors than biological males, for example. And additionally, luckily, unluckily, pain sensitivity is influenced by sex hormones and also where we are in our menstrual cycle. Oh, who would have thought actually studying our hormones and figuring out what they do to us would be a good idea? Hmm. Beats me. I don't know. Not the medical community. (laughs) This probably explains why biological females have more chronic pain disorders than biological males, not because of anything psychosomatic, but because of our biology. Oh, and of course, I just want to point out or dig the knife a little further into my side that the majority of studies on chronic pain and the majority of studies on painkillers for pain have been studied primarily in, wait for it, wait for it. Wait for it. No one's surprised. Biological men. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't even have to guess. I just knew the moment you started saying that sentence. (laughs) One of the things that we wanted to point out is a very interesting paradox that this study found when comparing the pain of men and women. So what I mean by this is that when comparing women to men, women have more pain. There's more women diagnosed with chronic pain syndromes. It's also more acceptable for women to show pain. But the paradox comes into effect when, throughout all of that, women's pain, when they report it, is taken way less seriously. The pain is discounted. So the irony comes into play when women are reporting pain, it's just taken less seriously by their doctors. And on top of that, the type of medication or the strength of the medication is less when compared to what is recommended for a man. And the study found that women's pain is, quote, discounted as being psychosomatic or non-existent, end quote. Ah, okay. So, oh, women, you have more pain, but we're not going to believe you when you report it. Yeah, that's exactly what that means. Mm, Interesting. So when they reviewed the studies... These patterns emerged about the stereotypes about men and the stereotypes about women when it came to pain. The studies they reviewed showed that, quote, 
women with pain can be perceived as hysterical, emotional, complaining, not wanting to get better, malingerers, and fabricating the pain as if it were all in her head. End quote. Other studies showed that women are assigned psychological rather than physical causes to their pain. Okay, so that was about the woman, but what was the stereotype about the man in these studies? So men were seen as, quote, being stoic, tolerating pain, denying pain, and taking health risks even when they led to increased pain, end quote. Okay, so let me get this straight. Men with pain are stoic and strong, but women are hysterical and emotional. Men can tolerate the pain and will deny the pain, but when women have real pain, they're called malingerers and like they're making it up in their heads. I'm very confused at how society came to this point when both people are in pain, but one person can't possibly be in pain and the other person must be in more pain than they're admitting to. That's ridiculous. So in the studies that they reviewed, they also found that women, and I think we're all listening going to relate to this one, that they reported that they didn't feel like their healthcare provider trusted what they were saying. Oh, as in I can't possibly know what I'm talking about or the own experience I'm having in my body? Yeah, and they also said that they were psychologized by their healthcare providers. And I think we're all familiar with that, like, oh, maybe it's stress. Oh, maybe the pain is on your head. Maybe it's anxiety. And I thought this was really interesting because in one of the studies they reviewed that was in Finland, women wrote about how difficult it was for them to get their back pain diagnosed. And they were talking about how the doctors didn't take them seriously and how the doctors dismissing their pain and their, quote, doctor's neglectful attitude became part of the problem, end quote, of getting diagnosed. And I think that we're all very familiar with this. Like part of the problem for getting diagnosed with endometriosis was that many times it was very hard for the doctors to take us seriously. Wow, a study from Finland. That's so interesting. Because for most of these episodes, we've been talking about the biases in the United States. But this study on gender norms reviewed articles and research from several countries, including the United States, but also Canada, various countries in Western Europe, Australia, New Zealand, and even Japan. So the problem clearly isn't isolated to just the United States. It's prevalent in many countries in the world. Sickening. Ah, oh, it just makes me feel sick. If I go to the doctor and I say that I'm feeling sick, they're probably going to say it's all in my head. And I'll be like, yeah, you're right. In this case, it really is all in my head because it's learning about the different <laughs> sex you do to and people. gender biases that the medical community has against women and how that harms their care. I'd love to have an antacid for that. Thank you. <laughs> So this next point is something that I love. And by love, I mean really, really hate. You ready? No. <laughs> I didn't think you would be. Another aspect that this study reviewed was how the appearance of women who had chronic pain influenced what their doctors thought about how sick or how in pain they actually were. So this is probably something that you've heard, likely, or have experienced a doctor saying something like, you don't look sick. So what does sick look like? Mm, good question. Well, I know when I look at you, it's not it because you're too <laughs> young to be that sick. Oh, yeah. The good old age requirement for being sick. That's right. You look too good to be sick. You look too healthy. You can't possibly be in that much pain. 
Thank you, Maybelline. <laughs> I really Thank appre- you for covering these dark circles. I really appreciate my concealer does wonders, and so does my <laughs> blush. Don't you see the rose? Makes you not look like a pallor of death. Is that what <laughs> my you're rosy doing? cheeks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's just when you go in to speak with a doctor and you're perceived as not looking sick or not looking ill enough, which there is no scale for that. We've all seen that pain scale in the doctor's office of like, oh, what does the patient's face look like? One to ten. That's how much pain they are. But I've never seen pictures of how ill they look must mean how sick they are. So these phrases have, as I'm sure you can attest to, and people who have also experienced this, don't help you. They don't make you feel better because someone told you, you don't look that sick. You look too healthy to be sick. Oh, I'm too healthy. Okay, then I feel better. No, it makes you feel irritated and frustrated and sad and dismissed. It's not a good or helpful or constructive phrase for a doctor to say to you. Honestly, whenever I go to the doctor, I always think about what am I going to wear? What do I want to look like? Because like Brittany was saying, like, I don't want to look too healthy because if I go with a full face of makeup on and then it's that, oh, well, you don't look sick. Okay, so maybe should I put on like foundation, but then I should rub off my concealer so I have really dark eye circles. And then additionally, like what kind of clothes should I wear? Like, Yeah, I want to roll out and go to the doctor in my bathrobe, but I can't do that. So if I go in my pajamas, am I going to be taken as seriously as if I go in my professional clothing? You know, like I just want to go with no makeup on without doing my hair in like my ratty pajamas. But if I do that, then I'm probably going to be seen as like a messy woman and I'm not going to be taken seriously. And then maybe they're going to think I'm a drug seeker or they're going to make assumptions about my social economic level and put me into different stereotypes and categories based on that. And that's going to affect my care. I think it's hard. It's hard to know how to present yourself. Well, I think when it comes to a bias, it's lose-lose. That's what happens with a bias. So if you show up presenting a certain way, no matter which way you present, there's a bias attached to that. So if you show up in relaxed clothing with a ponytail or your, you know, little to no makeup, there's a bias for that. If you show up right out of work in your business attire with makeup, if you wear makeup or your hair done, if you do that, then there's a connotation for that. There's really no way to negate a bias that's built into a system. And it's worse for people of different races or sexual orientations. And they can't even change anything about that because it's not about the clothes you wear in that case. But There's just no way to combat a bias, which is why it's so defeating and frustrating that nothing you do, nothing you wear, the way you say things isn't really going to change the level of care that you may get depending on how much the bias is present. I just find it's ridiculous that our appearance and the way that we look can influence our care. Like that is just ridiculous. Like how about what influences my care is the symptoms that I'm presenting? How about what influences my care? is the conversations that we have about the risks and benefit analysis of the medication or the surgery or the different treatment options that you're offering me. That is what should be influencing my care, not the way that I wear my hair, if I'm wearing makeup or not, what my clothes might quote-unquote imply about my social economic level or my level of education. None of that should be influencing my care. We should all be getting equal care no matter what we look like. And we need to just stop judging people for the look in general, period. Amen. We have a right to the same care, regardless of our gender, our race, our socioeconomic status, our clothing, our hairstyle, our sexual orientation, or any other component of our identity. 
We have a right to equal care. And we're not getting it. No, no, we're not. I just feel like right now I've been horrified and outraged enough by the history of hysteria and then talking about the textbooks of 50 years ago and the stereotypes of women that I just cannot even go on That's today. Fair. Like, I feel like <laughs> let's just end I've here. learned so much that either my brain or my uterus is going to shut down, maybe both. Like, I think they're both in overdrive right now. Well, I've learned so much in this episode that I think my uterus has actually atrophied. <laughs> Because of my increased education level. <laughs> so I think I'm going to have to tap out and attend to my atrophic uterus. Oh, my God. We should buy an ultrasound machine. Oh, okay. I'll, I have the funds for that. <laughs> Who knows what that would cost? We should do an experiment. Let's buy an ultrasound machine. Then we'll perform ultrasounds on each other. And we'll be like, oh, sit here looking out the window at the birds. And we'll watch the uterus. <laughs> yeah, we'll look at this. We'll examine the size of the uterus. And we'll be like. Do the dishes and sweep the floor, singing to Cinderella's songs. Oh, it's happy, healthy, whole, oh, unatrophied it uterus. It grew a little bit. And then it'll be like, <laughs> do a crossword. And it'll be like, oh, it's shrunk. It's shriveling up and dying. <laughs> <laughs> that would prove this theory that was never proven because it's not real and not true. <laughs> okay, so Brittany has to go plan her trip with her uterus at the bed and breakfast. Yeah. And I just have to go lay down because clearly I'm overloaded. <laughs> We are going to end this episode today, and in the next episode, we will come with what is hopefully the final installment, although next week we could come and say, but there's two more installments. Who knows how much we'll talk next the week. The never-ending topic. <laughs> no, God, but it's ser- fascinating. It's seriously just like, I cannot even believe all these things that used to be thought about women, but at the same time, I can, and I feel sickened, and I feel horrified, and I feel, I don't know, I don't know what I feel. So... In the next episode, we are going to further explore the idea of what's known as medically unexplained symptoms. And we're also going to give ideas on what we can do to help get better treatment knowing that the sex and gender bias exists. Useful. But not too useful. No. Because we don't want to make your uterus useless. Oh, it's such a fine line to toe. (laughs) It's a lot of work. It's like you have to be smart, but not too smart. Yeah, this is really challenging. You have to think, but don't think too much. Okay. Okay. (laughs) I'm just going to go to sleep. I can't mess that up, can I? Oh, wait. Can't sleep. Thanks. (laughs) Please reach out to us if you'd like. Let us know if your cramps get worse every time you're doing a crossword puzzle or, (laughs) God forbid, Sudoku. Oh, God. Oh, God. Anything that involves numbers. Oh, God forbid. When you use your brain, do you bleed heavier? Does your dysmenorrhea (laughs) go up when you're neurotic? Tell us. (laughs) Are you a mesomorphic, yet underweight, yet over-anxious, yet over-under, over-under, (laughs) over-under? Egocentrical perfectionist. Do you fit the, quote-unquote, patient profile? of an endometriosis patient from the 1970s. Tell us we need to know how <laughs> inaccurate that was. <laughs> so please reach out to us. We're on Instagram at in16yearsofendo, and we are on the website in16years.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you next time. 